Corinthians, we're continuing on uh, where we've been looking at, and this morning we're up to uh, 6, verses 9 to 20, so it's in the, um, the paper in front of you as well. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but you will be mastered by anything, uh, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore... Honour God with your bodies. Thanks, Bob. Good morning, everyone. You can still say good morning with your mask on, yeah? Good to see you. Um, just listening to that reading, um, I, was, I remembered why we ended up in the book of 1 Corinthians. I was thinking, there's just so much... Um, in, our, in the water that we swim in, in the world that we live in, that is, um, is, you know, really that we go against the tide in, following Christ. And initially I was going to um, come up with a series of talks that I thought would be like first century uh, answers to 21st century problems or something like that. And then I thought, I thought, no, we just need to work through the book of 1 Corinthians. Because the stuff that they were dealing with there is so... Relevant. Sometimes you read some of Paul's letters and you, um, you're kind of going, oh, I can see how that applies to me. You know, they're fighting about um, circumcision or sects or sects. Sorry, that was S-E-C-T-S, sects. And you kind of go, oh, I can see, I can work out how that applies to me, you know, food laws and Sabbath and things like this. But really, it's not everyday kind of stuff. The letter of Corinthians, they're dealing with everyday Kind of stuff. So I hope that it's been rich for you um, so far, and um, let's just pray that as we come to really dive into this passage, that God would um, both comfort us with His 
grace and, um, and speak into our hearts very clearly. Loving Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, to not leave us alone and not leave us to our own devices. Lord, to make a mess of our lives. But Father, by um, your goodness and your grace, Lord, you came into this world. Lord, you sent your son to be our rescuer, our redeemer. And Lord, to be, to be our Lord to love us and guide us in your paths. So, Father, we pray that as we um, pick through these verses and understand what's being said here, Lord, that you would really speak deeply to us, Lord, that your spirit and our spirit, Lord, would be um, in harmony with one another, and, Lord, that you, your spirit living in us, Lord, would be leading and guiding us, Lord, in the new life that you've brought us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one thing that um, I remember doing with my dad a bit as a kid was fossicking. You know where you get a pan and you get a bunch of rocks out of a creek and you try to find gold in it? And um, dad was, I don't know how he got into this or how he knew anything about this, but he was kind of pretty good at it. Um, and he, well, I mean, Pretty good at it. Like, we don't have a mansion on the hill because he found something ever. But he, he kind of knew how to do it. Whereas I'd get in there, and I never really had the patience. And that's like the story of the next hobby that we tried when we tried to fish together. But I never really had the patience to kind of sit there and let the water run through and weed it, whittle it down. And I'd always just get sidetracked by this stuff called mica. I don't know if you know what mica is, but it looks like gold. And it's everywhere, particularly where we lived, out on the northern tablelands, um, the New England area, where there was granite rock everywhere. There was mica in the rivers, and it glittered like gold. It looked just like the real thing. And it was really easy to get. And the problem is, as soon as you get it, it's just, it's kind of nothing. It, it just kind of crumbles in your fingers. Sometimes it gets called fool's gold. Because it looks like the real thing, it looks like the proper thing, but when you actually um, hold it, it crumbles and it's, it's essentially worthless. Now, can you see where we're going with this? Sex is such a precious thing. But I think the way that we're used to seeing it just in our culture that we live in, it's like the fool's gold. The way that it's portrayed, the way that, it's, that, that we most frequently bump into it, outside of the kind of you know, loving relationships that we may be in, the way that it's portrayed and presented is just like that. You might remember that through the letter of Corinthians, Paul's really hitting hard on the wisdom of the age, the wisdom that the Corinthians think that they're full of, and they're wrestling with wisdom and foolishness stuff all the time. They're surrounded by a culture that prizes wisdom, but the problem with their wisdom is it's of human origin, and so it's ultimately weak at best. And so into this, Paul, through the letter of 1 Corinthians, is, is speaking about how the cross and how what Jesus has done, yes, it saves us, but it actually turns worldly wisdom on its head. You can see that, can't you? Because what's at the center of our faith? It's a crucified guy, a guy that's at his weakest. That's what saves us. And so 
it, it tips us on its head. One, chapter 1, verse 18 uh, is the verse that might remind us of us. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who is being saved, it is the power of God. And we've got to remember this framework. This is transformative grace. It turns things on their head. Now, holding on to their Corinthian wisdom, the church in Corinth, they've been making a mess of having their life really turned upside down by the truth that they've received. We've seen that in just the last few, as we've come back to this from chapter 5. The Corinthians, on one hand, had no judgment for this guy who was in an incestuous relationship where they should have really let the gospel be transforming how they reacted to that. And if you tuned in last week, it was on video, the sermon. At the beginning of chapter 6, we see that they're going to court over completely trivial stuff. On one hand, they're not doing the judgment that they should, and on another hand, they're being too judgmental. That's just the most recent example we've seen. Throughout this, what Paul is dealing with is, is all these ways in which these guys just aren't getting the transformation out of the gospel that should be flowing on from it. That's the problem he's addressing, not being transformed by the gospel and instead living out of worldly wisdom. And that's the problem that comes when we grasp that Jesus accepts and loves us as we are. That's one of the beautiful truths that we will um, talk about as Christians. God loves you as you are. I hope that when you reflect on that and hear that, that it gives you all the comfort and hope and joy that it should. We've just got to be careful that we never stop at that because God loves us far too much to leave us as we are. He accepts us warts and all, but he, he, he makes the leper clean, doesn't he? And that's where we're on a journey as believers to be not just justified but sanctified, not just saved but made to be like our Lord. And in fact, that's the New Testament language for exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus is both Saviour and Lord. If we just treat him like Saviour, well, we're not having the transformation that should come. We've got to treat him as Lord. Now, chapters 5 to 7 are addressing Real instance of this. For verse 9, we see that there was some letters being written around. Paul's already written to them once. Um, we see that there's verbal reports coming in chapter 5, verse 1. People are speaking back to Paul. And there's this whole interaction that we're actually diving into as we look at this. But what we get at the start of that reading, and it kind of overlapped with last week's reading, that list in chapters nine, uh, verses 9 to 11, they pretty much sum up the main things that Paul's writing to deal with these guys uh, about. And for that reason, it's best to see this list as kind of like the Corinthian list. There's lots of lists in the Bible. Some are exhaustive. They'll tell you everything you need to consider. Some are just a sample. This is pretty much what's going on in Corinth. That's the problems that are going on there. Men who are having sex with men, idolaters, sexually immoral. Um, I think when you go through the other verses, it talks about yeah, thieves and greedy that kind of swindling, the sex and the scamming. It's what's at the heart of the lawsuits. It's what's at the heart of not honouring God in their bedrooms. And while Paul, what, 
Paul is addressing this, he's still going after that love of worldly wisdom that they, that they fall into. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a pretty confronting statement, isn't it? It's a statement of rebuke. Don't you know that this is, this is not who gets to inherit the kingdom of God? You've, you've marked up at some point here, Corinthians. Now, even while he says that, though, his point is not that they should be questioning if they can really be assured of their salvation. He's not actually even saying that to them as if it's like a stick that he's holding over them, where he's saying, stop this or you'll miss out on heaven. That's not how he's talking here. It's just the fact that they, or we, all acknowledge when we come to faith in the first place. That is the fact. Wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God. If you haven't received Christ with that kind of posture and that attitude, well, then that's when you would doubt whether you're a Christian. But we, we adhere to that. We understand that, don't we? What can Jesus save me from if I don't believe that I'm a sinner? And so he writes that as much to rebuke them as to remind them that sin leads to destruction. But listen to the words in verse 11. That is what some of you were. Past tense. And in Christ, you're no longer those things, even though that's some of you what you were. And so what's his point? He's saying you were those things. Don't be defined by those things anymore. Don't live as, still, as though you're still defined by that. Now, this is where he really takes uh, head, head on what he needs to say. There's a repeated phrase, I don't know if you've picked it up throughout chapter 6. It comes up uh, about six times there. Anyone guess what it is? Have a glance over your sheet if you want it there. I don't have a chocolate, but you can still give me the answer. It's a little, I'll, give you, I'll give you a hint. It's a little rhetorical question. Is anyone game enough to say it? We can't work it out. Okay, I'll, 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 I won't tell you, I'll just show you it. It's in chapter 6, verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 19. He keeps saying to them, do you not know? Do you not know? Why is he saying that? Because they're the people that think they know everything. They're the people that believe that they've got the wisdom to work it all out. And for people who are supposedly so wise, Paul's making the point that they're actually pretty thick, thick in the head. Paul's addressing the problem, and he even quotes their own wisdom back to them. That's what we get in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12, listen to what he says. You say, I have the right to do anything. That's their worldly wisdom. That's their way of seeing things. Verse 13, they say... Um, you say food for the stomach and stomach for the food. That's their worldly wisdom going on. Well, what's he talking about? He gives it away in verse 16. The way that they're applying that truth is they're just carrying on the Corinthian way and heading down to the Roman temples where there's temple prostitutes and they're having sex with them. 
And they're doing it in a way that, that they have no shame about. That they're not concealing what they're doing. They're just getting out there and doing it. They're being Corinthian again. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. It's just a bodily thing, they say. I have the right to do anything. I can do what I want. I'm a, you know, I'm a, and even applying that into their Christian faith. I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm free. Very cheap version of grace, isn't it? Think of it just as a bodily urge. I'm going to relieve myself sexually or get my fill. This is where it's a prime example of not paying any attention to Jesus' lordship, but just going with the Corinthian way of life. Paul wrote these words in the day where in the Roman Empire, that's just the way that things happened. Sex with your spouse was for procreation. Sex with a prostitute was for recreation. Just how they got on. They'd head down to the temple, find themselves a prostitute, have their time there, and then just head home to their wives and families. And these Corinthian believers haven't worked out the problem with that. They didn't think who it mattered. And they said that to Paul. And notice how Paul responds to that, that attitude, that wisdom. You say you have the right to do anything, but this is what he says, but not everything is beneficial. We've got rights to do all kinds of things. I realized this a while ago. I had, um, I had a meal with some friends once, and one of my mates who I was having a meal with said, let's go put it, we're at a pub, let's go put a dollar in the poker machine and see if we can win our dinner back. Yeah? Now, is it legal for me to play a poker machine? Yeah? Is it a big gamble to lose one dollar? Kind of not really. It's very inconsequential, isn't it? But I noticed for me, I don't have a gambling problem at all, but I noticed for me very quickly, those things are deadly. They've got a powerful draw on you. And I would found myself not just doing it that one time, but for about the next six years, most times when I'd go to the pub for a meal, I'd do it. And sometimes it was a dollar, sometimes it was five. And then there was a point, I reckon probably a lot of um, this kind of childish stuff for me woke up to myself when I was about... Um, when, when Sonny was born and I was a father and I just thought, hang on, you've got a kid, you can't be a kid anymore. And I was just like, felt the pull. I mean, it, it's not the, exactly the same as sex, but you can see what I mean. Like that's a very socially acceptable, completely legal, I didn't break any law or anything like that. Even I was working in ministry, even like the code of conduct that I had to agree to for the job that I was in said nothing about anything like that. No breach of it. But yet, not beneficial, hey. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. You can apply that through with all kinds of things in our culture, can't you? I mean, I can go to the bottle shop. I can go here or there. We um, are happy today that we can meet together. The vaccination question, we don't even have to ask it to come together as a church. I can't remember exactly where it, um, comes on the whole opening up in New South Wales, but it's just very confronting to read that brothels are on the list and strip clubs and things like this. It's just very prevalent in our culture, isn't it? You can do a whole lot that is not 
illegal in our culture, but is in no way beneficial. We can come up with heaps of examples, and maybe that's a helpful way to discuss through this, as long as we're being honest with ourselves. But when we get to the end of verse 13, after Paul's quoted back there, their really gross statement there, that it's nothing more than just having a square meal, he says to them, the body, however, this is chapter 6, verse 13, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. There is a purpose to the way that God has created each of us. And to be involved in in sexual immorality, the word in Greek is porneia, and you can pretty easily work out where we get our word pornography from, but it's not limited to images of sex acts. Okay? We are not created for that. And if we're not created for that, we're certainly not redeemed to a life of that, are we? The body is not meant for that. And if you treat something that's not meant to be treated in a certain way, what do you do? You you destroy it, don't you? You destroy it. I mean, a very plain example is uh, if you go and pick up a netball that's designed to be thrown around and you start kicking it like a soccer ball, you're going to bust the thing. It's just not built to be treated like that. One of the greatest pieces of false wisdom that gets bandied around, that are, it's in our ears, it's on our screens, all the time is, is that it's, it kind of can be phrased like this. Why should a person or the government or the church or God have any say in what two consenting adults do? You heard something like that before? And in our culture, it's treated like the greatest assault on freedom when anyone speaks out against a notion like that. And one of the most liberating our freedoms that is kind of spoken about in our time is the freedom to live this way. To just indulge whatever sexual urge you have. I don't know how you feel about this, but it's not uncommon as a Christian today to feel like you're on the wrong side of history on this point can be frustrating or personally difficult to walk this narrow road. The problem is, with the Corinthian church, it's actually the reverse situation. For us, we're coming out of an era where the Christian worldview was mainly how people viewed sex, at least in our Western cultures. The Corinthian culture just shows how powerful the gospel is on this point. Because it was being spoken into a culture where that was the norm, where sexual immorality was the norm. And so as I look at it and I consider that we actually will be feeling that, but the reverse is true, doesn't that give us great comfort? That what we hold on to, and if we just hold on to it, well, we're on the side of God's power. It's very hard to navigate, but it doesn't need to be. And of course, the path to being uh, able to navigate this with, without the struggle or without a defeating kind of struggle is living out the relationship with God that we have in Christ Jesus. 
Of course it is the gospel that answers this. What's weaved through this passage, and I'm just going to pull out for us, is Paul's challenge to their attitude with the beautiful truth of the gospel. Go to verse 14 first. You know what he says? By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Look between what Jesus did in his resurrection and the picture of the life that someone following Jesus lives. It's a raised life. It's a new way of living. Being different isn't just being different for the sake of it. It's a different in a way that through God's gracious revelation to us, we actually know how life can work properly without the pain, without the destruction. And not only there, it mentions that it's with power. By his power, God raised him from the dead. If God can overcome death, surely he can overcome sexual immorality in the life of a person who will submit to him. Stand very easy to reason that way. That power to overcome misplaced sexual desires, to overcome the pull of the sexualized world that we live in. We follow Jesus as Lord who is risen and we can only follow him because he's risen. That's the first beautiful truth of the gospel that Paul wants us to live out of in response to this. But then the second one, and comes up in verse 16, is just he hits up some very straightforward truth. It kind of backs on what he says in verse 13 that that, um, that. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, where he says what sexuality is meant for. Look at verse 16. The second half of it, it says, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and he says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. Very easy way to remember this principle from the Bible is that sex is sticky, as in it actually unites people in relationship. There's a story of a woman who... Uh, regularly used eye drops, reached into her handbag one day and instead of grabbing the eye drops, grabbed super glue. Could you imagine how, what a mess she made of herself? Ended up in um, an emergency ward and they had to dissolve it and just wrecked some of her eyesight. A few weeks ago, I can't remember exactly what day it was, it was a Friday afternoon, I don't even remember how it happened, but our little Luna, she was, she copped something to the eye, it happened on the trampoline, that's right, I think it was Astro's head into her eyebrow, split open, Para takes her up to emergency, and what do they put on her? Super glue, essentially, I mean like it's probably not just stock standard from Crazy Clarks or whatever, but they've glued her eye back together. In one circumstance, this essentially same tube of stuff brings healing, brings, brings the eye back together. And in another circumstance, in the eye, wreaks havoc on this lady. This quote from Genesis 2, that the two will become one flesh, that the, the design that God has made that marriage is where sex belongs and nowhere else is because sex is potent, it is powerful, it is sticky. It is meant to have that bonding effect. It's meant to be 
in a marriage relationship the thing that brings people together. That's how God designed it. And there's two really important implications that come out of this truth and and where it comes from. If it's from Genesis 2, what hasn't happened yet? There's no sin. This is not something that God says in response to our sinfulness. This is inherent in God's good design. And if it's inherent in God's good design, but we live on the wrong side of that, we live in a fallen world, well, by implication, we can expect in our lives to stuff this up. For sexual immorality to be present in our life in some way, to have impacted our life in some way. That's not to say that we're all rampantly sexually immoral. But but we're just as affected by it as everyone else. And so we need a strong sense of God's grace to have any chance of overcoming it. Increasingly, again, it's said in our culture, I don't know where you've, if or where you've bumped into a saying like this, but people say monogamy is an unnatural thing. You ever had a friend or, or someone having a conversation about this? And as you think about people that want to use that as the worldly wisdom of our day, we've got to remember exactly what it says here. It's only unnatural to a sinful nature. It's only unnatural in a fallen world. It feels that way. I can, I can empathise with that kind of mindset. But we've got to remember that sex itself is just as potent at creating monogamous bonds or being sticky as it's always been. We've got to remember that. And so we have to believe in the wisdom of God's word on this. Faith needs to be exercised. So there we go. We've got two things that come out of the gospel so far. That we're raised people with the power of God. We know the truth that sex is sticky. The third thing is that the gospel means that we have relationship with God. And there's this really awesome thing that Paul does here where he talks about God in his fullness. He talks about the relationship we have with the Son, the Spirit, and the Father to explain this here. So first of all, look at verse 15, the one we skipped over, where he talks about the Son. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We, being followers of Jesus... We're united with Christ in a way that Paul can write that. Members of Christ's own body. He's not just talking metaphorically. Because look what he says next. Next, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? That just doesn't work. Sexual immorality just doesn't work. Creates this picture like... Paul's doing there is he's creating this word picture of of kind of bringing Jesus into our own willful sinfulness because it's bodily. I mean, that's kind of scary and it's it's meant to kind of 
confront us like that way because it's revealing in us the damage that can be done when it's misapplied. We're united with the Son and we've got to live out of that. Not only that, verse 19 says, we're the temples of the Holy Spirit. He's making... God's Spirit makes us a temple. That is to say that He dwells inside of us. Paul is playing on the words of temple here a bit because where were they going to find the prostitutes? In the Roman temples. They worked out of it. But He's not just being clever. He's showing that this sacred thing that is sex in its proper context belongs in its right place, when our physical bodies have God's Spirit inhabiting us, making us a sacred place. He's showing how sacred both our bodies are and the bond of sex is. And of course, it leads us to knowing God the Father. We, through being united to Jesus in the Gospel and receiving His Spirit, what do we become? The children of God. And that is to say that we don't belong to ourselves. That's what he says there. In marriage and and the sexual nature of that relationship, we belong to each other and it talks about that in chapter 7. We'll get to that. But even more so, more fundamentally, you and I belong to God. You are not your own. That's countercultural, isn't it? And that is liberating. To know that I am not my own. It means that I'm actually freed from that that worldly wisdom to just indulge whatever feeling that I have. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that to indulge any feeling that we have, that could be a very destructive way of living. Well, it is a destructive way of living. Look under the sheets of Australia, of modern Australia. It's a mess. It's a mess. But I don't say that like, tut, tut, we're the church, we know what's better. The right posture to understand this, and this is said back at the end of chapter 5, is to remember, but for the grace of God, we're there too. But by the grace of God, we are liberated and we thank God for it and we will live in it. That's where Paul wraps up. He knows that sex is sex, that sexual desire, it's not just this little thing. It's not not just like thinking about, I'm hungry, I'll have a meal. It's, It's a much bigger part of what it means to be human. And because he knows that and because he's very aware of the fallen world that we live in and the cultures that come along with it, his advice in verse 18, his, his, his um, direction is what you've got to do is flee from sexual immorality. There's nothing ambiguous about what he says here. There's a great illustration. It's not mine, but I'll use it because it works. A guy went out hunting for a bear. He carries his gun around. And the bear spots the man and he looks at the hunter and he thinks he'd make a good meal. And they kind of get to this stalemate position where the bear is looking at the hunter, ready to strike. The hunter's there with his gun fumbling around, ready to shoot. And the hunter says, hang on, 
out of fear. He's like, hang on, let's just negotiate this situation. All I want, uh, you've got to take some creative license here, we're going to have a talking bear in a second, but anyway, all I want, bear, is your beautiful fur coat. I want to take it and have, give it for my wife. Or, and I'll have it for myself. It works if I have it for myself. I want the fur coat. And the bear says, well, all I want is just a nice square meal. I've been hibernating. I just want something in my belly. And you know what happened at the end of that? They both got exactly what they wanted. The man was inside the bear, inside the fur coat. You don't muck around with sexual immorality. Paul says, flee from it. You just got to get out of there. It's not something to be negotiated with. Treating sex in any other way than it being that bonding element inside a marriage, that's the all-encompassing term that sexual immorality is. Whether it's a different expression of that, whether it's not monogamous, whether it's casual, whether it's um, out, you know, involving more people, whether it's pornographic, whatever, whatever you want to list it as. If it's not that, it's sexual immorality. Flee from it. It's unambiguous what he's saying. And just to really bed it down, he makes it really clear, when we sin in this way, we sin against a lot of people. Think about that. When you sin sexually, you sin against the person that you sin sexually with. If that's not your spouse, then you sin against your spouse because you're breaking faith with them. And if you're not married yet, then that's whoever that will be in the future. You sin... Here it says, against yourself. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What a thought. You sin against yourself. I don't know if you've experienced that heavy guilt that you feel when you stuff up in this area of your life, but it's heavy, and this is why, because it's against yourself. You sin against your own body. And just as I've been contemplating this, why does our world insist on so much acceptance of anything that goes when it comes to sexuality? Why does it insist that the tone of the conversation is of accept, accept, accept? It's because you're sinning against your own body and it's producing inside of you such immense guilt because it is so wrong. And by that, I'm not, I'm not just making a moral statement. It is against the good design of what God has created. And of course, that is to sin against God. And in this particular way, it's in an embodied way. It's not just a quiet, private, whatever goes on in the privacy of someone's bedroom kind of sin. It is, couldn't be further from that. And so where does Paul land us? We're not our own. We're bought at a price. Therefore, we honour God with our bodies. 
This is a statement that says Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus is Lord, that always means the best for us. Because Jesus is always good. He is always for us. We are not our own. We have been bought at a price. So the call on us as saved people is to honour God by his grace with all of our life and particularly in this area. We're going to come to prayer, but before we just go straight into prayer, just take a moment and just digest what you can of that and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. Okay, let's Let's go into that reflection. Lord Jesus, we know that Because of our faith in you, Lord, you are united with us. And Lord, we know that that means your ongoing grace and ongoing salvation, Lord, that will take us to all eternity. And Lord, we know that that means that we're with you. So Lord, help us. You're with us. So help us as you're with us. Holy Spirit, we Ask that we would honour your presence in our life and rely on your power, particularly to overcome desires that we will have in our brokenness to sin in this area of our life. We thank you for your grace to be present with each of us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you paid the price to buy us, Lord, that we were bought at that price the blood of your son, and Lord, you counted that cost. So Lord, at any point when this feels like a heavy cost being asked of us, Lord, let us know how precious it truly is and give us the grace to live in accordance with you. And so Father, we hold all these things up to you and Lord we just ask finally that you would help us to navigate our world Lord you would help us to be truly wise Lord as our lives are turned upside down by the beautiful news of the cross we ask and pray all this in Jesus mighty name Amen